Okay, Matthew 26. Last week we looked at uh, verses 31 to 46. Anything you remember from last week? It seems like Peter uh, learned that lesson because we looked at First Peter. It seems like Peter learned that, which is good. We should we should be able to uh, to learn from our mistakes. Um, if we can't learn from our mistakes, we'll never progress. And that's with anything in life. What else do you remember from last week? Anything? Mm-hmm. Amen. And, you know, Jesus, obviously, in verse 31, at the end of it, prophesying here, talking about Zechariah 13, he he prophesied that it would happen. It was fulfillment of prophecy. But yet he still pleaded with them to watch and pray. Yeah. That's good to know, because when it comes to the lost, God still pleads with them. You know, even through us, he pleads with them to be saved. Which shows that they have, it's not just some game God's playing. There's, they have free will, you know. All right. Well, let's uh, start in verse 47. <clears throat> and we're going to read all the way through verse 75. Um, now, there's lots of small verses in there, so don't feel like it's overwhelming. I don't know if, if we'll get through all of it today, but um, let the Lord lead on that. So let's start in verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whoever I kiss, he is the one who sees him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he'll provide, with me, provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber, with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that, he, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And those who had laid hold of him, of Jesus, led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat uh, with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at least two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? 
But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is us, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. And they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also is with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. They began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Okay, so we see here in verse 47 that Judas is leading this great crowd of men to arrest Jesus. Now, John 18, 1 through 3, um, says that he would have known of this place because... I'll just read it to you real quick. You don't have to necessarily turn there if you don't want to. Uh, John 18, 1 through 3 says, When Jesus has spoken these words, he's speaking to believers, he went out to disciples. He went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and disciples entered. And doesn't really give the example of what happened to him while he's in the garden, all the details about that. And it says, And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Jesus, Judas knew of this place uh, because um, he knew that they often went there. That's how he knew where he was. The question is, how did he know that Jesus was there at that point in time? We'll get to that here in a little bit. Um, so he came out with this great multitude of swords and clubs and came from the, the chief priests and elders of the people. You see that Matthew here is saying Judas, one of the twelve. And I want to submit to you that at this point... I think this disciples would still be confused, would still not understand what is going on, because remember, the last time they saw Judas, he had left the meal, and they thought to themselves, he's going out to feed the poor or get stuff for the feast. They had no idea. In fact, they were saying, is it I who's going to betray you? So they still, at this point, probably didn't suspect Judas. He's still considered one of the twelve at this point. Um, but then he kisses him. And he calls him rabbi. Now, the word rabbi can mean teacher, it can mean master. Um, and this this word is only used of Jesus in the New Testament, with one exception. Uh, in John 3.26, it's used by John the Baptist's disciples of John the Baptist. And so it's only used of Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, so it's a very uh, strong title to use about somebody. It uh, doesn't just mean teacher, although it can mean teacher. It also means master. Okay, so... And this goes to show you, friends, that people can call Jesus master, teacher, okay? Um, and they could kiss him, but still be fakes. Still be fakes. Uh, someone can be with Jesus for three years and still be a hypocrite in the end. This isn't someone who just read the Bible for three years and he was sitting in a good church for three years under a good pastor or a good teacher's. This is someone who sat under the best teacher for three years. And he still ended up being a hypocrite. You know, so we need to uh, beware, lest we become hypocrites. Uh, and beware, um, lest others become hypocrites. That just because someone's a part of a good fellowship or has good doctrine does not mean they cannot become a hypocrite. In fact, that's the person who God, above all else, would love to become... I mean, through the devil, above all else, would love to become a hypocrite. He would love it. Because if, if, if such a person who has sound doctrine, who's walking in holiness, who's a street preacher, and has all their boxes checked and all their dots in a row, uh, you know, if, if they become a hypocrite, it is fuel to the fire of all those people who have false doctrine... All those people who are not walking in truth, all those people who want to criticize and condemn the way that person is living their life and say they're wrong, 
it just gets fueled to the fire. And the devil would love for a person like that to become a hypocrite. And so, no, if you're if you are you believe you're walking in holiness before God, you have all your doctrine straight. Beware, you have a big target on your back. If you're a street preacher, you're in the highways, and byways, and hedges, compelling sinners to come in. You have a target on your back. You're 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 the top of the list, so to speak. Because if he can get you to fall, he can get all the dominoes with you to fall with you. So he would love to. Have, the devil would love for you to fall. <clears throat> But just going to show you, no, no matter of good teaching, no matter no uh, no uh, no amount of good teaching, no amount of uh, calling Jesus master and kissing him, so to speak, makes someone a Christian or clears them of hypocrisy. Okay, even hearing from Jesus himself. I mean, Paul himself said in First Corinthians nine twenty seven, they said, "I I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself become disqualified." Now, if Paul the Apostle, who, was, who wrote half the New Testament and was like this 13th Apostle kind of thing, he was called at, out of uh, one born out of due time, then if he could fall, if he could possibly be disqualified, surely we can. And this goes back to last week. We need to watch ourselves and watch our backs. And our brothers and sisters in Christ need to watch our backs for us as well. Okay, so he, he calls him rabbi. Uh, he betrays him. Jesus says, friend, why have you come? Now, Jesus knows the answer to this question, doesn't he? Doesn't he already know the answer to this question? Hasn't he been talking about what, what he's going to do all along? So every time you see in Scripture, this is a good point against open theism, every time you see in Scripture God asking a question, does it mean he doesn't have the answer to the question? No, it doesn't mean that. When God went to Adam and Eve and said, where are you? Did he know where they were? Yes. So, just because God or Jesus asks a question isn't necessarily because he doesn't have the answer. And this is kind of like one of the ideas that, that the open theist doctrine uses, that when God asks a question or something like that in Scripture, is it a genuine question? Well, it's a genuine question for that person to ask themselves. It's an important question for Jesus. What are you doing, man? Well, it's almost like saying, why are you doing this? Snap out of it. Come to your senses. Yeah, I was uh, on Tuesday. Me and Malachi went to Volunteer State Community College, and um, I got to somehow I got on the topic of abortion. And this one young man pumped his fist and said, "Yeah, uh, what do you say, Malachi? Uh, population control." And I just went off on him. I'm not really. I really made me angry with a righteous anger, and uh, you know, I, I think I think he kind of shook him a little bit to how hard I was on him. Because he sat down, he was quiet, he stayed around probably the, most of the rest of the day. Uh, and so sometimes questions are not simply because a person doesn't have an answer. It's to shake the person who the question is being asked to. Do you, I mean, what are you doing? You've been with me for three years now. You've seen my miracles, you've seen my signs, you've seen my way, you've seen everything I've done, everything I've testified about myself. You, you, you yourself have probably, I mean, it doesn't say that he has done him specifically, but Matthew 10, he gave him the power to raise the dead and to heal the sick. And yet here you are with my enemies, bringing them to me to betray me. Wake up, man. When I hear people say, well, I used to be a Christian. I, I, first of all, I wonder if they ever really were a Christian. But if they were, I, I say, how could you betray your Lord? Where else can you go? Like Peter said when all the people left him in John 6. Where else can we go? You have the words of life. How else can you have salvation? How else can you have forgiveness of sins? So that's the kind of question I see uh, Jesus asking Judas here. But he knows the answer to the question. And so if, if someone tries to, as an open theist, tries to use that line of reasoning against you, you can point to this and say, listen, didn't, didn't Jesus know what Judas was going to do? Didn't he know why he was there? Didn't he just talk about that a little bit before then? Of course he did. So they laid hands on him and took him. And, and, you know, keep in mind, these disciples are kind of still half asleep. Okay? And so you have the eight and you have the three who are closest to Jesus, where Jesus was, was at. And uh, they're sh- shooken out to see Judas kissing Jesus and these big group of people with, with swords and clubs. And, and what does Peter do when they grab him? He pulls a sword out. And, uh, of course, it doesn't say Peter here, but if you go to John 18, 10 through 11, you'll see it's Peter there. That's the only gospel that gives a mention of who, the, who it was who did it. 
And, uh, you know, he, I guess he's trying to live up to his promise here. Because didn't he make a promise? Last week we talked about this, that, you know, I'm ready to die for you. I'm ready to die with you. I'm ready to go to prison with you. And uh, so he cut his ear off. And this is the, Malchus is the guy's name, whose ear was cut off. And Jesus rebukes Peter. Put the sword, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now, I think this is a good verse for uh, passive non-resistance. Now, the people who are against passive non-resistance would point to the fact that they say the reason why Jesus said this because Scripture must be fulfilled. This is about him dying on the cross. But, yeah, that is one of the reasons. But the other reason is found in verse 52 I just read. He said, put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. He didn't want Peter to perish. And he shouldn't be doing that. And so there's really two reasons here. You can't say the only reason Jesus told Peter to put his sword back in place because he had to be crucified. Surely Peter could have fought anyway, and that big group of people would have killed him, and Jesus still would have been crucified. So Peter not putting his sword back in his place is not stopping Jesus from being crucified. It's stopping Peter from perishing. And Jesus said, none of them I have lost in John 17, when he's praying to the Father. None of them I lost except for Judas. And so he didn't lose Peter. He didn't perish. Let's go to Romans uh, 12 for a second here. So we see Jesus, uh, you know, and we can go to Matthew 5 too if we have to. Uh, Jesus talked about, someone strikes you on the left, turn to them your right cheek. And uh, Romans 12, starting in verse 14, this is the Apostle Paul writing here, so he believed in this too. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so we see uh, that Jesus spoke about it in, in Matthew 5. If you wanted to go there, you could, but I'm not going to go there right now myself. Matthew 5 talks about this. We see Jesus practice it by telling Peter to put a sword back in its place, which is not on someone's ear, but in its sheath. Um, we see the Apostle Paul talking about blessing those who persecute you and repay no one evil for evil. Uh, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. You know, taking your sword out when men come to you with swords, does that promote peace or does that promote war? It promotes war. So as much as depends on you. I mean, I can't decide what they're going to do to me, but I can decide what I'm going to do to them. That's as much as depends upon me, how I will respond to it. Uh, do not avenge yourselves, rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I have world pace to the Lord. Okay, so do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the Apostle Paul, obviously, writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, believed in this. Revelation 13.10. So we see Jesus teach it. We see Jesus put it into practice in practical terms. We see the Apostle Paul uh, believes in it. And we see he believed it all throughout his life. I mean, you see nowhere in the book of Acts an Apostle taking the sword out of their sheath and trying to kill somebody or trying to defend themselves or even trying to defend another person okay revelation 13 10 the end times it says he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity he who kills with a sword must be killed with a sword here is the patience and the faith of the saints so the patience and the faith of the saints from the time jesus spoke and the time that jesus uh, dealt with peter in the garden to the time that paul wrote in romans uh, until the end times, which is what Revelation 13 is talking about, that is what our patience should be. Here's the patience and faith of the saints. And so we're not to kill people by the sword. You know, I had a young man ask me about this recently, about this killing thing. And I said to him, listen, I said, um, I have, I could not possibly take the life of someone and send them into eternity knowing they don't know Christ. 
I, I couldn't in good conscience ever do that. I'd rather myself be killed and all my family be killed before I kill someone and send them into eternity. Because I know where I'm going. I know where my family is going. And uh, people may look upon that wrongly, and that's fine. I have no problem with that. Um, but I, my, I must obey my conscience. Some people would say it's okay to, for self-defense, but I find that nowhere in Scripture. It's found in the Old Testament. But as we looked at Matthew 5 long ago, um, Jesus sometimes changes things from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In fact, let's just go to Matthew 5 just for a second here. Matthew five thirty-eight. Okay, Jesus is going to quote from the Old Testament law here. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. Okay? So that's quoting the Old Testament. That's Old Testament law now. Now here's the change. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Okay? And he talks about giving, uh, suing people who want to take your tunic, compelling to go one or two miles, borrowing people, and then down in verse 43, once again applicable to what we're talking about, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now the hate your enemy part's not found in scripture, but the love your neighbor part is. But they treated, the Jewish people would treat their enemies with contempt, like the way they treated the, the Samaritans. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, since rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect." <clears throat> and so we see Jesus' teaching. We saw Jesus, what he practiced when he told Peter to put his sheath, uh, sword back in his sheath. And this is the way Christians are supposed to act in this world until Jesus, is return, Jesus returns. Okay, go back to Matthew 26 now. It says, Do you not think I, can, I cannot pray now to my Father and he'll provide with me more than 12 legions of angels? Now, a legion in that time was about 6,000 soldiers. So we're talking about Jesus, if he wanted to, could call in 72,000 angels, okay? Using the numbers they used at that time. Now, legion may be something else at this point in time, but back then it was 6,000 soldiers per legion. So Jesus could call in 72,000 angels, if he wanted to, to help him. And surely 72,000 angels would take would make swift uh, destruction of these men who came out to destroy Jesus. Uh, but of course, he did nothing. See, he could have called on, but he didn't. God could have protected him, but he didn't. And that's what their part is in this situation. That he laid down his life. This is not the same as suicide. Some people in the open air say, what's, what's there between what Jesus did and suicide? Well, suicide is me killing myself. Laying your life down as a sacrifice is someone else killing you. And you allowing them to do it. You know, it'd be like someone who's very strong, okay, because Jesus is, a, is strong in the sense that he can call on 70,000 angels if he wanted to, and he can speak things into existence, he can kill men if he wanted to with the, with the breath of his mouth. It'd be like a really strong man allowing a bunch of children to take him, to beat him, to crucify him, to destroy him. That man didn't su- commit suicide, but he allowed those people, those little ones, to do that to him, Okay. That's what it's like. It's not the same as suicide. It says, How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? And so let's go to Isaiah 53 just for a second here and look at this. And we know one of the scriptures being fulfilled here is Zechariah 13.7, which says, The sheep of the flock will be scattered. And if Peter would have kept using the sword, he wouldn't have been scattered. It says he would have ran away. He would have been scattered. In another sense, he would have been killed or arrested. So it would not have fulfilled Zechariah 13.7. Uh, <clears throat> Isaiah 53, we know it's a messianic uh, prophecy. And verse 7 it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And he opened not his mouth, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as sheep before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. So he's going like a lamb. Interesting, I've been studying lambs a little bit lately. 
And uh, lambs, you know, they like to follow each other. It's just like they're instant. They don't even think about it. You just, if you see a lamb take off a lamb, they'll just start following them that direction. If you leave one lamb to slaughter, all the lambs will follow behind. Like it's no big deal. Like, hey, let's go to slaughter. Yeah. That's kind of the way they act. And uh, from what I've read from uh, from people who've dealt with sheep all their lives, this is just instinct. That's what they do. They don't they don't think about it. So they say, well, should I follow him or not? They just kind of go. That's the way it is. And that's why it's, a, it's good for Jesus to use. My sheep know my voice. They hear me. They follow me. Not about, well, am I going to obey Jesus today? Hmm. No, you just follow Jesus. You just follow him wherever he leads you. You don't think about it. You don't think twice about it. He, you follow him wherever he leads you. And so he's led as a lamb to the slaughter. Okay, and that's what that's one of the prophecies being fulfilled here, is him being led as a lamb to slaughter. He's not fighting. He's not fighting them off. He's led as a lamb to slaughter, just like the lambs do. Lambs don't fight people. Uh, in fact, as I read about lambs, uh, interesting, they, they really don't have any offense, offense at all. Um, there are some lambs that'll have horns, but it's rare they'll use them to defend themselves. Usually the way lambs defend themselves, they flee as fast as they can. And they stay in herds together. Okay? And as I read about that, I thought about the situation because, you know, Jesus says in, in verse 31, quoting from Zechariah 13, that he's the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. But now he becomes like a sheep. He's being transformed now. He's no longer a shepherd. He's one of the sheep. And when a lamb is the most vulnerable, it's when it's by itself. If it has the herd around it, it's not as vulnerable. So now you have one sheep by itself. The rest of the sheep fled. It's as vulnerable as can be, like a lamb to the slaughter. Just like I watch in, in these uh, these films about nature, you you'll see the lions chase a, a, a herd of zebra, and they're looking for that weak one, or looking for the one that's going to separate itself from the pack. If it separates itself from the pack, it's vulnerable now. Uh, same thing with those bulls. Now, those bulls you see in Africa, they can they can kill a lion with their horns they have, and they'll charge lions. But the lions don't go after the big ones usually. They go after the small ones, the weak ones. And when it's separated from the pack, you know it's done. And so Jesus has been separated from the pack, so to speak, from the herd, because his disciples fled. They left him. They forsook him. Okay, So he's like a lamb to the slaughter. He's not fighting. He's not like a goat to the slaughter. A goat might fight you a little bit. He's not like some other kind of animal to the slaughter. They might fight you a little bit. But he's like a lamb to the slaughter because he did not fight one bit. He laid his life down. And not only that, but the one lamb that did try to fight, he rebuked, and he stopped fighting. And uh, let's turn to uh, Luke 22 for a second here. I'm going to see more details that Luke gives. The other... Gospel writers don't give. Uh, starting in verse uh, 49. So when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with sword? And one of them struck, notice they, they didn't wait for the answer there, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Now a couple things here. One thing I just mentioned. They asked Jesus, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Did they wait for the answer? It's dangerous to pray to God for something. Not wait for an answer and then take actions if you have have been given an answer from God. It's very presumptuous. And what happened when Peter took action? Someone else got harmed and Peter got rebuked. So when you don't listen to God, you ask him a question, but don't wait for the answer. You get impatient about it, answer the prayer. You want to take steps. You want to take it into your own hands. Oh, this looks like a good thing to do. And you step forward and do, not because God told you to, but because you want to. You think it's the right thing. Peter thought it was the right thing to do. He didn't think he was acting presumptuously here. He thought he was doing the right thing. I mean, they had just talked about swords not too long before this. It's two? Yeah, it's enough. Two's enough. Just before this, this whole situation. And uh, he cut his ear off because he didn't wait for the answer. If he would have waited for the answer, what would Jesus have said? No. Keep your soul where it belongs. It doesn't belong cutting someone's ear off. Secondly, Jesus healed the man. Now, Jesus had done many healings. But why is it significant? Because these people are coming out to arrest him. 
And he's about to be trialed and accused of blasphemy because he claims to be God in the flesh and the Son of God. And yet he healed someone right in front of his arrestor, the people who were arresting him. And who can do that? Who has the power to do that? To put an ear back that's been cut off. And yet they arrest him anyway. They continue with the arrest as if they'd never even seen it. So he healed them. Verse 55. In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, lots of people there, to arrest him. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that scriptures of other prophets might be fulfilled. That all the disciples forsook him and fled. Now let's go to Mark for a second here. And read an account that's really interesting that kind of seems to come out of nowhere. And I didn't know what to do with it at first when I started thinking about it. And I um, read some commentaries on it as well. Mark fourteen fifty one through 52. This is after, you see in verse 50, the disciples forsook him and fled. So Jesus is being led uh, to, the, to Annas first, and then the high priest after that. It says, Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young man laid hold of him. This is probably the man that are with you who are taking him back. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Now the word naked here doesn't necessarily mean no clothes at all. Okay, it can mean that. But I think it probably just means no outer garments. Okay, uh, which is considered naked as you can see here. And so when you see someone in the, in the open air wearing a bikini, they're naked according to the scriptures. Because they don't have proper, they're, not, they're inadequately clothed. Uh, without outer garments. Because bikinis are just really inner garments. That's what they're supposed to be. Supposed to be undergarments. So this this young man here has a linen... What do we make of this young man? We don't, we don't know who he is, so to speak. It's only found in Mark's Gospel. Okay? Uh, now, some people uh, would say that this is Mark himself. And that's that's a possibility. Uh, now, think about this for a second. Now, there, there was a... They had a feast at this person's place. Doesn't say what this person's name was. Where they had this Passover feast. And then they left the Passover feast. But before they left the Passover feast, they were still there. Judas left, got his regiment of soldiers, and came to find Jesus. Now, at that point, I mentioned at the beginning of the teaching, did Judas know when he left where Jesus was going to go? There's nothing in the scripture that says, Jesus said, while Judas stood there, we're going to go to Gethsemane when we're done here and uh, have some prayer time. I'm going to sweat some drops of blood, and then you're going to come arrest me. He doesn't say that. So for all Judas knew... Um, they were still at that place. So this is all, I mean, all this is kind of conjecture at this point. This is all kind of uh, opinion. The scriptures don't elaborate on this, but I'm just going to elaborate how I think it might fit. Um, that Judas brought the people back to the house where he was at first, and he had this big group of soldiers with him, and, and Jesus wasn't there. So whether the person of the house told him where he was, and whether Judas said, you know what, I bet you I know where he is now, we don't know, but he went out there. And I think a young man, that's what he's talking about here, a young man at that house, whoever it was, was aroused from his sleep because he saw Judas, he saw this great detachment of soldiers coming for Jesus, and he said, what's going on here? And he probably followed him right to where Jesus was. And he got out of the bed so quickly, all I could throw over himself, over his pajamas, so to speak, which are usually are outer gar- undergarments, not outer garments, okay? You don't, you don't go out in public in your pajamas, right? You, know, you, you, you keep your pajamas inside your house, usually in your own bedroom, you keep your pajamas. Now, some people, they break that rule, they shouldn't be, but they do. And so he, he threw a linen cloth on himself as he's running out of the house to see what's going on. And uh, so he's the last one to kind of follow behind as all the twelve disciples, all the eleven disciples already fled, and he's following behind. And then they grab his linen cloth and he flees for his life. And so, like I said, that's all opinion at that point, but uh, that's what I would suppose happened there. But it's not one of the disciples because they'd already fled. Okay, and it's a young man there, not a disciple who are not young man like that young man was. And, it probably, and that word young man there means like teenage age. Okay, yes. You're not. Saying all that, that that was Mark bringing back the house, it's a different person. No, well, some people think it was Mark. Some people think it was actually Mark's house that happened, and he was just a young man at that point in time, teenage age, and it was his father's house that it happened, and that's why I think he's the one who went out there, and that's why it's only found in Mark's account. That's what they're supposing. Okay? So, whether it was Mark or not is beside the point, but it's a very interesting story to read about this young man who.
wherever he came from, however he knew about it, he came out there in just a linen cloth and some undergarments to see what was going on. He was that concerned, he was that interested in what was happening that he was willing to do that in the middle of the night. So, all right, go back to uh, Matthew 26. <clears throat> so it says, Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Now, isn't that the very thing Jesus prophesied about? Isn't that the very thing in verses 33 and 35 that Peter and all the disciples said they wouldn't do? Yet they did it anyway. So beware of speaking great swelling words about yourself, about how you'll respond when bad things happen. You ought to be humble considering those things. And realize that you could fall just like these 11 fell, who spent three years with Jesus, and they fell. Verse 57. Now before we get to verse 57, you have to realize there's something that happens before 57. Between 56 and 57, Jesus was brought to uh, Annas first. Go to John 18 for a second. And we'll see that John gives us some facts that aren't given in the Gospels. In John 18 and verse 12, it says, Then the detachment of troops and the captains and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Okay, so Annas was actually, according to secular records, was high priest from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. Okay, Caiaphas was high priest from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36, and he's a son-in-law of Annas. Now, uh, generally speaking, and there's no law that says this in the Old Testament, as you look through the examples in the Old Testament, generally speaking, if someone was high priest, they were that until they, they died. Okay, But because of political reasons, the Roman, sold, the Roman uh, government disposed of Annas as high priest, and one of his other sons became high priest, and another one of his sons became high priest, and then eventually his son-in-law became high priest. And he lasted a long time, for 18 years, so he must have had some in-workings with the Roman government to be able to last that long. Because the Roman government didn't want someone in the Jewish nation to have so much power uh, as one person. So he's led to Annas first, probably because to give Caiaphas time to organize all this group of people who are going to be there for this this farce of a trial, for this mock of a trial. Okay? And we, and we see again in verse 24 of John 18, then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Okay? And that's where we pick up in Matthew 26 and verse 57. And those who laid hold of him, hold of Jesus, led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now, if we were to go to John again, we would see that actually John the Apostle went in first, and he knew the high priest, so he convinced one of the servants, servant girls, to let Peter in as well. Okay. Uh, now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. So there goes out the door, innocent and too proven guilty. They have an agenda, obviously, to put to death the Son of God, to put to death Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, we know that if that in John, that Caiaphas prophesied that one should die for the whole people, because he feared the way the Roman government would respond to Jesus doing what he was doing and saying what he was saying. But they sought false testimony against Jesus, because they could find... No good testimony against him. They sought false testimony. But even then, they could find none. It says two came forward, two false witnesses came forward, and these are the two, the, the first two witnesses to agree on something concerning Jesus. They said, um, I am, they said that Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Now, is that what Jesus said? And keep in mind, go back, go to John 2.19. We'll see what he said here. Um, keep in mind that this was said a long time ago. This was said at the very beginning of his ministry. Um, so about three years ago, this was said. And these people still remember this. Uh, John 2.19. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. And this is what they said. He said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. See the difference? 
Yeah, we don't want to be false witnesses against somebody. If we think someone says something wrong, we ought to go with them and clarify first before we bring any kind of accusation against them. Because not only are they bringing a false witness against them, but a false witness against the Son of God. Even greater than that. And let's think about this for a second. Can someone destroy the temple of God in all its ornateness and all of its beauty and all of its structural soundness and build it again in three days? Is that possible? Well, it's possible for God, but obviously they don't think he's God. They think he's a human. And they're saying that he said that he was going to build it again in three days. And so they know that even if he did say this, it's an impossible claim to make with how they view him. So for them to even bring this forward is very flimsy. And of course, Jesus is silent, just as uh, Isaiah 53 says he was. He was silent, the lamb to the slaughter. And um, they ask him to keep uh, to respond to these testimonies against him, and he keeps silent. He says, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are Christ, the Son of God. Now, some people who believe... Let's go to Matthew 5 for a second. Some people who don't believe uh, Matthew 5... Which refers to oaths in verse 33. It's referring to all oaths. They say, look, Jesus, Jesus bound himself to an oath. Jesus took an oath. That's not what that says, but Matthew 5, 33. It says, again, you've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. And so we talked about this a long time ago, but what we talked about is that when you have to put some kind of additive to your yes and no, uh, it shows that your yes and no by itself is not trustworthy. You're saying that about yourself when you do that. You know, let's pinky swear. I promise. I promise. Poke needle in my eye. You know, that kind of stuff. I swear in my mother's grave. That stuff is all stuff that proves to that person you're talking to that your regular yes and your regular no are no good. So you're saying a lot about yourself when you do that. Yes. I'll be honest. I'll be honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, Jesus said... Right, but he's not swearing. No, he's not. Not taking an oath. I just think, I'm just yep. idea, I'll be or... Yeah, he's not. He's not saying that. Uh, he's not adding things to his yes and his no. His yes and his no are good enough. And um, so, not only are you saying that about yourself, but if you say that about yourself, if your yes and no by itself aren't good enough. Then why should saying something like that, adding to it, why should why should it be good enough now? If you're not trustworthy when you say your yes or no, why should you be trustworthy because you say I'll stick a needle in my eye? Or you pinky swear, or I swear in my mother's grave. Why should that be trustworthy? Why you're so you're you're basically saying I'm not a trustworthy person, period, when you do those kind of things. And so your yes is your yes and your no is your no. And some people would say, well, that's not talking about all swear, all, all swearing and all oaths. It's not talking about all those things. Well, if, let me ask you this. If, for someone who were, who were to say that, I would ask them, well, if Jesus wanted to say, no swearing at all, no oaths at all, just like I'm saying he's saying, how would he say it more clear than what he said it right here? How could he say it more clear? I mean, he's saying at all. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. I mean, he couldn't say it more clear. And um, so he, he emphasizes it over and over again in Matthew 5. Okay? And so just because the high priest says this to Jesus and Jesus responds, does that mean he's putting himself under oath? Did he say, I put myself under oath? No, he doesn't say that. He simply chooses to respond at this time. And um, it does, so it doesn't mean when he says it, doesn't mean that Jesus accepted the oath that, trying, that he's trying to put him under. Okay? And surely Jesus is not going to contradict things that he already said in the scriptures that we shouldn't be doing ourselves. He said, it is as you said, nevertheless I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And Jesus, Jesus knew that this statement he made would equal his death. 
He knew it would equal his death. And there may come a time for you, friends, as you're sharing the gospel, as laws become more more strict about what you can say and what you can't say. There may come a point in time when you have to tell someone the truth for the sake of their own soul, and it may equal your death. It may equal your death. But Jesus knew that saying that would equal his death. Then the high priest tore his clothes, which, according to Leviticus 29.10, the high priest is not supposed to do. not supposed to tear his clothes. So Jesus proclaims the truth about himself. The high priest does not receive it, and he does something sinful, which he shouldn't do, which the law forbids him to do. And he accuses Jesus of blasphemy. Now, blasphemy is from the Greek word blasphemia. It's just a transliterated word. It means speech that denigrates, speech that defames, reviling, disrespect, slander, or demeans. So speech that defames. Now, God deserves all the fame, doesn't he? And to defame him is to bring him lower than he deserves to be. So, if Jesus is not the Son of God, if he's not God in the flesh and he's claiming to be, that is defaming God, is it not? It is. But as we've seen many times throughout our study in Matthew, he showed that he's the Son of God. He showed that he's God in the flesh of many signs and wonders. They rejected it over and over and over again. So, he's accused of blasphemy. And this is the point where you can, you can really use when it comes to talking to, uh, to Muslims. Okay? Uh, because what he was accused of, the accusation why Jesus was put to death, is because of blasphemy. Now, if we just claim to be a prophet, he just claimed to be a good teacher, then he has not blasphemed. But if he's claiming to be the Son of God, or God the Son in the flesh, now he has blasphemy if he is not that. And he deserves to be put to death. And so it's a good thing to use in them because, uh, first of all, they think prophets don't lie. And, of course, he had to have lied here. And secondly, the whole reason he was put to death, and they would disagree with this, I can't remember exactly what they believe about this, but they, they wouldn't agree that Jesus was put to death for blasphemy. Okay? And then the high priest turns to the Sanhedrin, who's there with him, and says, what do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. So they had a decision to make. Is, is what Jesus is saying true? Or is what he's saying false? And if what he's saying is false, then he is deserving of death. Turn to John 10 for a second here. And I'll give you some more ammo concerning this blasphemy accusation and what it, what it literally meant. What they thought he was saying about himself earlier on. In John chapter 10 and verse 33. It says, the Jews answered him. Let's go back to verse 31 actually. Then the Jews took up stones... Again, to stone him. So they wanted to stone him because he said he was, he and his father are one in verse 30. Jesus answered them, saying, Many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, saying, is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture could not be broken, do you, say, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. So they, they saw that he claimed to be God as a man, and he's claiming to be the Son of God right there, and that's what they considered to be blasphemy. And this is the very charge he's, they're, they're making to him right now, that he's claiming to be the Son of God, that he's claiming to be God in the flesh because he, they think he's only a man. And so they had a decision to make, and they made the decision as a group to reject him. If you want to uh, look at the penalty for blasphemy, go to Leviticus 24 and verse 16. It talks about that. So then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands, and saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Now, the reason they're saying prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Because according to Mark fourteen sixty five, they had blindfolded him. Okay, so he's he's they're telling him to prophesy who it is you're striking you, without being able to see us. Okay, because they had blindfolded. Let's go, go to uh, Isaiah fifty six here. Just another fulfillment of prophecy. 
Isaiah chapter 15, verse 6. So I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And so the, the New Testament never says that Jesus' beard was pulled out, but we believe this verse 6 in Isaiah 50 is talking about Jesus, and that's how we know his beard was pulled out. And uh, the beard, I would liken the beard to a man in those days, the same as a woman to her hair. That's the way it was. So it was very shameful to have your beard pulled out or not have a beard. Okay. So he had his beard plucked out, which is which can be very painful. I mean, I've plucked out one hair here and there, and it hurts. But plucking out a whole beard, that would really be painful. And um, so he was beaten. He was struck. Uh, struck with the palm of their hand. They spat in his face. All this to the Lord of glory. All this from his own creation. Did these things to him. Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. That's the same girl who led him in to the courtyard, according to John, the gospel according to John. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know this man. And so here we have... An example of what we just talked about. Peter showing to these people that his no by itself was not trustworthy. And what do you know? It wasn't trustworthy. Because he knows he's lying about it. He knows he's denying just when he shouldn't be denying him. So he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And then a little later, and according to Luke twenty two fifty nine, it's a whole hour later, this before this third denial. So he has plenty of time to think about it. He, he denies him once. A little while, excuse me, a little while later, he denies him again, and then a whole hour later, before he denies him the third time. So he's lots of time to think about these things. And so I think one thing we can learn from that is if you find yourself in a sin, don't plunge deeper into it. Don't let sin pile upon sin. That's what can happen. And some people, you know, they find themselves in sin, and they feel the shame and the remorse of their sin. And we'll talk about Judas ne- next time, and we'll see what, how he responded to his sin. And they just pile it on. They say, I'm already here. I might as well keep on doing it. And see, Peter had a long time to repent. He had a whole hour to think about between a second and third denial. And he continued in it anyway. And the third time, he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know that man. Now, this cursing here is not like saying a cuss word. It's not what it's talking about here. It's calling down curses upon yourself. Interesting, because um, it's kind of like an atheist. I saw it at WKU on Thursday. He walked by and said, If God exists, let him strike me down right now. Well, does that make any sense? Because if, if, if God does exist, and you're just a puny human being, and he's God, as the Bible says about him, and you really are supposing for a second he does exist... If he obeyed what you told him to do, who would be God then? You would be God, not him. And so for Peter to call down curses upon himself, said, if I'm lying, let curses come upon me. Does it do him any good? No, it doesn't do him any good. The oaths don't do him any good either. The swearing or committing of oaths don't do him any good either. And immediately a rooster crowed. In Luke twenty two sixty one, we see that Jesus turned and looked at Peter at this point. He turned and looked at him. And what what shame and guilt he must have felt then. But that, you know that's the, kind of the way we should see things. If we sin in the future, they say, "Oh, Jesus is looking." And if we realize he's looking before we do it, hopefully it'll stop us from doing it in the first place. We realize he's looking, and he went out and wept bitterly. The good news is, uh, of course. We'll see later on, Peter gets restored. And the bad news is for Judas is that he does not get restored. But they both had the same problem. Uh, in fact, you could even say that Peter's sin was worse than Judas's sin. Because Judas came and betrayed Judas. He did that. 
But Peter denied him three times. Three times. Three times. And so, there, I mean, people look upon Judas as if he's the, uh, the worst sinner ever. And Peter did things just as bad. But the thing that really separates Judas from among the rest of the, the disciples and their sin, because all the rest of the disciples fled too. They didn't deny Jesus three times, but they fled. They forsook him, it says. Uh, they, they forsook him and they fled. They forsook Jesus. Uh, is they came back. They came back. And we talked about this before in, in the teaching uh, we did on overcoming sin and temptation, that one of the greatest tools the devil will use, if he does get you in sin, is to get you to stay there. It's to get you to have worldly sorrow. And not to look upon the face of Jesus who is willing to receive you back, who is willing to forgive, he's willing to cleanse, he's willing to pardon you of your sins once again. He that confesses his sins and forsakes his sins will find mercy, the Bible says. And so if he can get you to stay in your sin, even to the point where you think, I've done such great sin, I might as well commit suicide now. That's what Judas was thinking. You know, and we have an example of this young man who, who we know, who came here, and he went back to his sin, and he felt so bad about his sin, he wouldn't come back. He felt such shame about his sin, he wouldn't come back to his friends. The only place that he can go for help, he didn't come back to it. He, he kept on going on his sin, he went up and wound up in a very bad place now. A place where he didn't have to be. If he simply would have said, you know what, I need to stop this right now, come to my senses, and turn back to Jesus, turn back to my friends who love me, turn back to my friends who have my best intention in mind, and they'll receive me. And so the devil will just pour on the guilt and the shame. Oh, you're horrible. Yeah, people are going to reject you now. They're not going to want anything to do with you now. You, you're not a, you couldn't ever be a Christian again. That's what he'll do. But you need to humble yourself and say, you know what? I do deserve this guilt and shame, but I'm going to come back to the Savior who will receive me back, who will cleanse me, who will forgive me again. He's willing. He's good. But we'll look at that more next time. The contrast between, well, Lord willing anyway, unless he leads me a different direction, the contrast between Judas and Peter, and how we don't want to be a Judas, and how we respond if we sin. We want to be like Peter and come back humbly. Okay, well, I'll end there for now. Okay, questions, comments, things you want to add? Yes. Well, I don't think this takes away from your point about uh, last week about maybe taking heed of the understanding. I just think kind of adds it into the context of, you know, this, this, I'll say this right. Uh, it shows how we can get fed a certain picture of Jesus and it can distort the real one mm-hmm. so much so that we don't want to see the truth of Scripture. We see it everywhere. But I can see it here with them because we know. Deception can lead to apostasy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what First uh, Timothy four or sixteen says: "Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will both save yourself and those who hear you." Yeah, yeah. Having false doctrine can lead to your apostasy. It really affects your life. But he was trying to overcome that false doctrine. Yeah, yeah. All throughout their life. He was trying to give them the truth about him dying, him rising in the grail, I'll meet you ahead in Galilee. Yeah. All these things, they just weren't getting it. No. They weren't getting it. stuck on what the Pharisees had said. You know, he's set up a kingdom. Well, why is this king getting smacked and spit on and beat and arrested? And I say this in open air, too, because I'll deal with a professing Christian who's who's trying to justify their sin, their daily sin, and saying Jesus is, God's okay with it, and I give him scripture. The scripture, the scripture. And, the, and sometimes I have to say, listen, listen, listen for a second. This is the word of God. Listen. Listen to this. Deal with this. And sometimes that kind of shakes me and says, okay, well, maybe I should listen for a second to this guy. And I have to think about what I'm going to respond with before I listen to him. Some people are just like that because they've been fed all their life. Sin, 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 sin. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Blood, blood, blood. Oh, it covers me. God doesn't see anything. You know? What was your second question, brother? Or point? Uh, kind of on the open theism type view, mm-hmm. I've heard Jesse talk about this. I think mentioned in his book in one of his verse references the uh, P53 talking about a different possibility Jesus could have done 
about Isaiah 53 what? No, no, uh, verse 53 in oh. Matthew 26. They're calling legions of angels saying, you know, I could do this, but he doesn't choose to. Saying, you know, this is an option of, of kind of a linear path I could take, but I'm not doing it. You know, what would right, but if he did do that, he would be a liar back in verse 31. Yeah, he wouldn't have filled the prophecy. Right. He wouldn't because uh, I'm just saying. I agree God has free will. Yeah, God has free will. God can choose to do other things, but he's already said what he's going to do. Yeah. If he already said what he's going to do in a certain situation, obviously he's going to do it unless he become a liar. Mm. Yeah, so... Maybe the whole statement isn't really just a linear. It's kind of saying, don't you realize I can do, I really could do this? I don't need your mm-hmm. help to defend right. me. Right, that's exactly what he's saying. That's the whole point of him saying that. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah and, and another thing, just going back to, just to bring that back up, an open theism issue here. How could Jesus know, hours later, that all 11 would flee? I mean, that's, a, that's 11 free wills we're talking about here. Not just one for Peter, who denied him three times. We talked about many times how that doesn't make sense with open theism. But 11 fled. Now, how does he know that one of those 11, just one of them, he doesn't know future free will decision, there's a great chance that just one of them is going to stay with them. You know, maybe die. Or at least, you know, stay with them. You know? So, but he knew that all 11 would flee. He knew that would happen. So that 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 once again, this whole scenario of Algiers knows these things, um, it just goes against that whole idea of open theism. Uh, there are things in Scripture which open theists use to support open theism, which, on a cursory glance, may seem to support it and approve of it. But I think, and, I, and what I've been doing since I've heard Jess talk about this years ago, and this is probably four years ago when I first heard him talk about this, and I actually considered it at first. Because yeah, he, I mean, the points sound pretty strong at first. But what I started to do, I started to read the Bible in light of open theism. As I read through the Bible, I found problem after problem after problem after problem. And that's what we must do. Whenever an idea is brought to us and it seems to have some support from Scripture, we need to read Scripture with that point of view in mind as our, in our daily reading and think, Every time we read through the passages, is that what open theism fit with that? And if we can't find a way for it to fit with it, then all the scriptures that we thought supported it, we need to go back and say, you know what, there's probably another way to interpret this properly. That's what we need. That's how you interpret things properly, the whole council of scripture. And so I, I think, um, you know, I don't know too many open theists, but the ones I do know, I don't think they can deal with these everyday scriptures that we're, as I'm reading through the Bible, they can't deal with, they may be able to, think they deal with some scriptures better than, than I can, but I would say as the scripture as a whole, they can't deal with it. They can't deal with it. And when they bring up their scripture, they can go back to my finding, and they think about them more and more, I can deal with them better as that time goes by, I deal with these situations. And so that's why, just beware for everybody here, okay? When you hear a doctrine that you don't currently believe in, and it sounds appealing, it sounds good, don't put your stake in the ground right away. Don't put your stake in the ground. Keep that stake back. Read through the scriptures. Take your time. No one's forcing you to believe it right away. Take a year. Take two years. Take three years if you have to to think this thing through before you say a public statement or make a public declaration. I believe this. Because yeah, then you have to backtrack and do it all over again. You're better off. You're better off to keep silent and quiet on an issue than to speak things that you aren't sure about or to speak things that you're going to find out in the future are not true at all. Because not only are you, are you you're misleading other people, but you're misleading yourself. And you're, you're going to, because you spoke these things for so long, once you find out, well, that's not true now, now it becomes harder for you to repent of it. You think, you, all these people have told these things, all these things I've said about this, all this time I've believed in this, it becomes harder to repent of it. You know, people who have taught once they've always saved for years, it's going to be hard for them to say, you know what? I mean, imagine how hard it would be for Charles Stanley to repent right now. Imagine how tar- hard it would be for John MacArthur to repent right now. Of all the things they've said. You know, so if you're not sure about something, if you have questions about it, seek the Lord about it, seek godly counsel about it, but don't put your stake in the ground too quickly. You're not only going to harm yourself, you're going to harm others. And there's a potential that you're not going to want to repent in the future when you find out it's wrong because you're saying, I did, you were so strong about it, you were rebuking people about it, you were telling people about it in public, you were, you know, all these things. So you need to be very careful about that. Yeah. Unknowingly, unwittingly. You have to repent of it later on. You're better off just keeping your mouth shut. That's kind of my philosophy. I mean, if if, uh, if someone's talking about an issue that I'm not sure about, or I don't know much about, I just keep my mouth shut. You know? 
That's kind of what I do. So. You made a reference to uh, Leviticus twenty-nine ten. Maybe I misheard you, but. Um. Let's see. For tearing your clothes. That's twenty-one ten. If I said twenty-nine ten, I meant to say twenty-one. Twenty-one ten. Yeah, the high priest should not tear his clothes. That was just, a, if I remember right, like an expression of grief or anguish, wasn't it? To do something like that. Extreme grief, anguish. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Jewish people per se aren't forbidden to do it, but it's the high priest is forbidden right. to do it. And so he, he shouldn't be doing that. And uh, that's one of, the, one of the ways people sometimes throw remorse, you know, clothe themselves in sackcloth and ashes, another way to do it. So, but he's not supposed to be doing that. So it's just amazing to me that Jesus is not sinning, and he's claiming that he is sinning, and he's sinning in the process of claiming someone else is sinning. Good question. I wonder what happened to Malchus. It'd be interesting if we see him in the kingdom of heaven. What would happen to him? I can't imagine that someone would get healed directly by Jesus and see all the things he did and all the things he went to went through and just reject him. Couldn't imagine that. So he was the high priest servant. Yeah. yeah. Serving the high priest, yep. He may have become the high priest servant. There you go. The true high priest, yep. The great high priest. Yep. Amen. Wouldn't surprise me either. I was uh, listening to some Paris Rehead preaching the other night. Okay. And uh, it seemed like a continual theme that he preached on several different times was how uh, fundamentalism can uh, replace Christianity. Yeah. And we can go from being a Christian to be a fundamentalist. We go from having a relationship to having a knowledge about right. Christ. And... Uh, I see that you just kind of kind of brought that out in teaching today, where the disciples were under three years of very fundamentalist teaching under the Lord, mm-hmm. and uh, still they ultimately didn't believe, mm-hmm. and they they forsook, mm-hmm. and they they departed. Yep. Uh, so it's really, and then Judas uh, even killed himself and, and damned himself to hell. Right. right. Uh, so it just shows that we have to make sure that we don't get so trapped in the fundamentalism that it becomes what we are mm-hmm. instead of the relationship with the Lord. Right. Yeah, Reed had, uh, he talks a lot about people who having good doctrine. Uh, it used to be you were, a, you were a Christian because you you knew the Lord. But then it became you're a Christian because you can say yes and amen to these several points of doctrine. Um, but saying yes and amen to several points of doctrine doesn't make you doesn't make you a Christian. Yeah, you can have all your ducks in a row. You gotta know him.